Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet. Uh, my name is Harold Furch, Scott Roth, and I'll be your moderator today. Just a couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, on June 22nd, uh, our next event will be uh, with uh, former Commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission, Joshua Wright. He's a professor at George Mason Law School, George Mason University, and he'll be speaking about the independence of agencies and uh, the suppressed role of economists. On July 6th, uh, Jeff Herbst, the former president of Colgate University and the currently president and CEO of the museum, will be speaking about uh, problems associated with anonymity on the internet. Uh, we hope that all of you can join us for those events. <laughs> Today, we'd particularly like to welcome our C-SPAN audience. Uh, we have a wonderful program today with two of the leading uh, speakers in America on issues of uh, civil liberties and security. Uh, we will, uh, they're going to divide the time uh, between them. Uh, on my left and on your right is Nadine Strawson. Uh, Nadine is the former head of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, she is, uh, uh, in my view, the uh, uh, leading and most articulate spokesman about civil liberties in America, and I think that's an understatement. Um, she has uh, 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 a frequent speaker uh, both here in Washington and around the world, uh, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to your comments today. Uh, David Rifkin is uh, one of the most prolific writers. I think he is probably the most frequent columnist in the Wall Street Journal, writing about a variety of topics, usually related to constitutional law and the role of the federal government. Uh, and he is, uh, 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 in fact, it was one of his many columns that uh, sparked my interest in uh, putting this, this event together today. Uh, uh, just kind of randomly, we'll have uh, Nadine speak first. She'll have about uh, 20, no, 15 minutes, and then David will follow with 15 minutes. They'll each have 10 minutes after that. Uh, then I'll have a few questions, uh, and then we'll have questions from the audience. If our online viewers or our C-SPAN viewers have questions, what is the uh, – uh, at, at Hudson Events is the Twitter handle to send in questions, and we're happy to take uh, questions from, from our audience. Uh, and with that, Nadine. Uh, many thanks to you, Harold, for that gracious introduction and for arranging this program, and thanks to all of the audience members for your time and interest in this important topic. I'm glad to once again share the podium with David Rivkin. We've debated each other about this issue several times since 9-11. One such debate was for the Intelligence Squared series way back in 2007, when we address the following provocative question, better, more domestic surveillance than another 9-11? 
Well, not surprisingly, before the debate, most audience members voted against another 9-11 and hence for more surveillance. However, uh, I'm proud to say that my debate partners and I persuaded almost 20% of the audience members to change their minds, so we ended up winning that debate. Uh, notably, one of my debate partners on that occasion was Bob Barr, and I say it's notable because he was a conservative Republican member of Congress from Georgia, and notably one of David's teammates was Andrew McCarthy, the federal prosecutor who led the prosecutions of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and other major terrorism cases. And that is notable because recently Andrew McCarthy has been speaking out strongly against excessive government surveillance, as have others who have held top counterintelligence and national security positions. They maintain that national security and personal privacy in our online communications are mutually reinforcing, and correspondingly, that excessive surveillance undermines both security and privacy. So to explain why that is, I'd like to quote a couple recent publications by some of these former officials. First, one from Andrew McCarthy, as I mentioned, the former terrorism prosecutor in the National Review, of which he is a contributing editor. His comments were triggered by the recent Apple FBI controversy, but they address fundamental general points about government's limited power either to constrain individual rights or to conscript private business. As Andrew McCarthy wrote, quote, our rights to communicate and to be free from unreasonable searches pre-exist law enforcement's capacity to intrude on them. It is law enforcement's burden to evolve technological surveillance capabilities that can be deployed in a manner consistent with our rights. The Constitution's point is to limit government's ability to intrude on liberty, not to limit the scope of liberty to government's capacity for intrusion. Again, a former federal terrorism prosecutor, former debate partner of David Rifkin. Um, now, let me quote uh, a recent Washington Post op-ed by three former top national security officials. Mike McConnell, former director of the National Security Agency, the NSA. Michael Chertoff, former Homeland Security Secretary. And William Lynn, former Sec uh, defense, deputy defense secretary. For several years, they've been writing that the Chinese government poses a serious national security threat through its massive theft of intellectual property, technology, and business information. They therefore advocate ubiquitous encryption to protect against such cyber exploitation. They do recognize, obviously, as former law enforcement security officials, uh, they recognize the serious concerns that the FBI has raised that such encryption would allow criminals to keep their communications secret. But they explain, we believe that the greater public good is a secure communications infrastructure protected by ubiquitous encryption without building in the means for government monitoring for three reasons. First, this would protect individual privacy and business information from exploitation. Second, 
requiring U.S. technology providers to build in access for law enforcement will not prevent malicious actors from finding other technology providers who will furnish ubiquitous encryption. Finally, if the U.S. makes this demand, other nations such as China will insist on the same. There will be no principled basis to resist. Uh, they therefore conclude as follows. Strategically, U.S. businesses are essential to U.S. national security interests. Therefore, it is essential to protect U.S. business from economic espionage. And that strategic imperative may well outweigh the tactical benefit of making encrypted communications more easily accessible to Western authorities. So let me summarize um, the theme that I've been developing so far. Our debate topic raises complicated, nuanced issues. Balancing liberty and security, privacy and security, is not a zero-sum game. And experts' positions don't follow any predictable patterns depending on factors such as their political views or whether their backgrounds lie in national security or civil liberties. Let me again quote Michael Chertoff from a debate I had against him at the Federalist Society National Lawyers Convention when he was Homeland Security Secretary under President George W. Bush. And I've quoted this line many times because I so completely agree with it. He said, we cannot live in liberty without security, but we would not want to live in security without liberty. Uh, again, I wholeheartedly agree with both parts of that statement. I've devoted my life to advancing civil liberties, and I have never felt liberty to be more endangered, including my own personal liberty to be more endangered than when I was in a country that lacked basic security. So while I was boning up for today's debate, what I found most terrifying about government efforts to expand surveillance uh, was not only the encroachments on privacy and free speech, negative as those are, as Andrew McCarthy noted in that quote I, I cited earlier, but I am also at least as terrified by the prospect that ramped up government surveillance will make all of us law-abiding citizens more vulnerable to crime, including terrorism and sabotage as explained by respected technology and security experts. Uh, I have to confess, I, I'm a patriot, but I do not share Patrick Henry's famous statement, give me liberty or give me death. I happen to believe that I should be alive in order to enjoy my liberties. Uh, so I want to quote a brief that was filed in the San Bernardino Apple FBI case by a, a prominent respected group of security and cryptography experts. They detail the various uh, serious security risks that would result from forcing device man manufacturers to facilitate access by U.S. law enforcement, as the FBI, of course, was seeking to do. Now, exactly how serious the risks are depend on exactly what the manufacturers would be forced to do. As the security experts explained, the worst case scenario, which is consistent with what the FBI was arguing for, uh, that worst case scenario would be if Apple were forced to sign the custom code that the government wanted to force it to design, and if that code is capable of being used on any Apple device with the same operating system. Let me quote these experts. 
If that leaks, the public danger would be literally catastrophic. After all, iPhones and iPads are used not just by members of the general public, but also by airline pilots, surgeons, police, and President Obama. Experience and history lead to the conclusion that forcing a company to undermine its own product security will imperil not just the cybersecurity, but also the physical security of its worldwide users. In sum, weakening communications privacy protections far from advancing security concerns, to the contrary, may well have a net negative security impact. We've also seen repeatedly how government overstates how important surveillance is, even for specific short-term security goals. Examples include the two recent high-profile confrontations between the FBI and Apple, the one I already mentioned involving the work iPhone that was used by one of the San Bernardino terrorists, and the other one involving an iPhone that was used by a Brooklyn drug dealer. In both cases, the FBI insisted over and over again that it could not access the data on these phones unless courts took the unprecedented step of commandeering Apple to design and authenticate software that would let the FBI break into its customers' devices. Yet in both cases, those claims turned out to be unfounded. First, in March, the FBI announced that it had found an alternative way to access the San Bernardino phone. And then just a couple of weeks later, the FBI announced that it had also found an alternative way to access the Brooklyn phone. We saw the same pattern with the National Security Agency, the NSA, concerning the sweeping, indiscriminate metadata collection program for all of our telephone calls, which Edward Snowden brought to light. In one-sided secret proceedings before the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, we now know, thanks to recent disclosures, the FBI claimed that this dragnet surveillance of us innocent Americans was the only effective means for keeping track of suspected terrorists, and I'm quoting uh, from their briefs. To the contrary, though, the independent analyses of that program have concurred that the NSA's indiscriminate communication surveillance has not made any contribution to our counterterrorism efforts. That was the conclusion of both high-level commissions that issued detailed reports on point in 2013 and 2014. Uh, first, the President's Review Group on Intelligence and Communications Technologies, and also the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Indeed, most tellingly, the NSA itself has backed down from its former extravagant claims about how essential this program allegedly was. In the briefs that the NSA has been filing in the open federal court proceedings and challenges that are being brought by the ACLU and others, the NSA, in contrast to the overblown statements about how essential this program allegedly was that it made before the FISA court, an open court where those claims are subject to rebuttal by an adversary to review by the public and the politicians and, and the press. Um, in that context, the NSA is making only the infinitely more modest claim that this program can complement other programs and may advance counterterrorism efforts. Uh, as D.C. federal judge Richard Leon commented, 
these hypothetical endorsements are not exactly confidence-inspiring. So no wonder he concluded that such a limited possible security benefit could not justify the huge costs to privacy and freedom of speech, not to mention the security dangers that uh, security experts are also flagging. So Judge Leon accordingly has issued two major rulings striking down the NSA's bulk metadata program as unconstitutional. And those rulings are especially noteworthy because he is a respected conservative. The Supreme Court has long recognized that government surveillance of communications chills or deters our fundamental First Amendment freedoms, including freedoms of speech, press, religion, and association. So the court has long held that such surveillance must be subject to especially strict standards, even when it is undertaken for national security reasons. Indeed, especially then, as the court has explained, Though the investigative duty of the executive may be stronger in national security cases, so also is there greater jeopardy to constitutionally protected speech, including political dissent in national security cases. In fact, uh, multiple recent studies have confirmed that our awareness of government surveillance has a demonstrable chilling effect on our online expression in particular, reducing the expression of non-conforming minority views. For example, just last month, one study showed, ironically, that this kind of self-censorship in the shadow of surveillance is especially pronounced among people who support mass communication surveillance as necessary for national security and who say they aren't bothered by it because they haven't broken any laws, and hence they have nothing to hide. And yet, there is a demonstrable impact on their self-censorship of views that they perceive as being in the minority. I'd like to quote the lead researcher for this study, Wayne State University professor Elizabeth Stoichev. Surveillance is enabling a culture of self-censorship that further disenfranchises minority groups. Surveillance, therefore, undermines the Internet's ability to serve as a neutral platform for open deliberation. Well, given the complex, nuanced factors at stake in Internet surveillance, I would like to suggest a general analytical framework for assessing any proposed surveillance measure. Uh, I'm not taking an absolutist uh, position here any more than the United States Constitution does. Uh, no doubt we are going to have many disagreements about the technological, strategic, and other factual aspects of each situation. Perhaps we could agree on the pertinent issues that we should evaluate. In the US, this analysis often takes place under the Fourth Amendment, which protects us from unreasonable, unwarranted government surveillance. But now I'd like to invoke the similar principles under international human rights law because they are a bit more elaborated, a bit more specific in detail, but completely consistent with Fourth Amendment analysis. First, the government has the burden of supporting any surveillance measure by a detailed and evidence-based public justification. Second, any such measures must be set out in public laws that are precise, transparent, and non-discriminatory, 
which constrain official discretion and provide effective safeguards against abuse. Third, the surveillance must be subject to prior judicial authorization. Fourth, surveillance measures must be resorted to only when necessary to achieve an enumerated important goal. In other words, as we often say in the US, the least intrusive means available for achieving that goal. Fifth, the benefits gained through these measures must not outweigh any harm that they cause, including harm to third parties and to network infrastructure and security. And finally, these measures should be overseen by an effective, impartial, and independent civilian oversight authority. In conclusion, uh, too much post-9-11 surveillance has not conformed to that framework and sadly has been the worst of both worlds. It has made us less free, but it has not made us more safe. Thank you very much. I also wanted to thank uh, Harold and, and Hudson and the Dean for coming here today. I will speak for a little bit and hopefully we have a, some good debate. Um, let me uh, go a little bit broader and or I should say in advance there are some points in which Nadine and I agree but we kind of fundamentally disagree. Um, well, let me uh, walk a little bit through, go a little broader and walk through what I call threat assessment. I, I, at least I'm glad that Nadine did not contest this, as, as some of uh, the folks who are opposed to surveillance and whatever incarnation it comes. Uh, we don't disagree about the threat. We're facing a, a serious threat ranging from, you know, lone wolf attacks to attacks planned by terrorist organizations. Uh, don't need to be very profound about it. Any one of you who reads papers and watches the news knows that uh, Al-Qaeda has morphed into numerous entities. You've got ISIS, you've got numerous other organizations, you've got uh, serious problems. We've not had sort of existentialist level of attacks using weapons of mass destruction, but we've been lucky in many respects. I don't know, but, but luck would indefinitely hold. Uh, we had mass casualty attacks, certainly in places like Paris and uh, Brussels. We had been much more fortunate on American soil, and we can talk about why that's the case, uh, but we've had uh, uh, San Bernardino, we had Boston. We are um, quite vulnerable, again, to attacks that would spoil your day if you happen to be caught in one, to attacks that would, uh, that would fundamentally degrade the quality of life in large regions and may, may imperil even uh, uh, more fundamentally our national survival. I should say, by the way, we're very vulnerable as a civilization. I mean, there are people who write wonderful studies about it, so I would not belabor it, and I don't want to scare you, but attacks at the portion, for example, of, uh, of our transmission infrastructure may well leave large portions of the United States not able to have electricity restored for days and weeks, and it's not just a question of not having heat and air conditioning, it's a question of not having any transportation, because, of course, uh, all of our vehicles get fueled using pumps that are fueled by electricity. It's not having any law and order because the police also relies on the same types of techniques, not even National Guards coming, et cetera, et cetera, because we all depend upon uh, um, you know, transportation for, for our mobility. So we are facing a serious threat. Now, fortunately for us, that threat, despite, again, some uh, uh, folks in this country, uh, 
doing lone wolf stuff and some penetration by, uh, by the bad guys that Fred is mostly overseas. So we have uh, the enemy that's operating at what the military would call long lines of communication. Uh, we're not very clear hierarchy. We're frankly not the greatest, and thank God for that, planners in the world. And that means that one of their areas of strategic vulnerability, and, and also they have, including the fact that they're not easy to discern. They hide among civilian population. They're quite resilient. They draw a tremendous number of sympathizers. And I won't have a debate about you know, the role of religion here or any uh, other roles, but let's say they have a, um, we have no shortage of volunteers. Um, so yes, we can degrade them overseas using drones and various other uh, uh, you know, attack methods, but fundamentally their Achilles heel was communications. So we uh, have to uh, disrupt their communications. We have to learn how they communicate. Now, that's, that's good news um, because, again, we have um, technology that can help us to do that. The bad news is we live in a world where people are very anonymous. Again, not to bore you with history, but while the world is a much larger place in the 17th and 18th century, it's actually much, much easier to be lost in this world. You don't carry internal passports. Um, you know, identity documents are easy to, uh, to fabricate. Uh, most of us do not know our neighbors. So it's very, very easy to be kind of lost in place, as again, comes up every time you investigate some attacks, less tragedy like San Bernardino and uh, in Boston. So um, the good news is, despite this tremendous anonymity, uh, given the way we live, buy things, sell things, rent apartments, rent cars, pay for meals, pay for lessons, there's a lot of footprints you leave. I sort of like to analogize them with the kind of footprints, again, in the olden times you would leave as you were trekking for the snow. So there's lots and lots and lots and lots of electronic footprints, which can be only discerned if you engage in surveillance. And by the way, with all due respect to the lamentations about indiscriminate surveillance, by very nature, you need to have surveillance of the entire landscape. If you think about it in terms of hunting, you need to be able to drapes for the woods and look around because you don't know where your prey is. I mean, it, 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 I, I understand in the law enforcement context, you do have, you know, something first to start an investigation which is below probable cause, reasonable suspicion, probable cause, you go to magistrate. I mean, I, I, I do this stuff for a living, sometimes challenging uh, the quality of a government's warrant and, and, and whatnot. I, I get all that, but it's utterly irrelevant in the counterterrorism context. And to say, as, as some folks in the Hill, like Rand Paul and, and frankly my friend Nadine said, well, you know, indiscriminate is bad. It has to be indiscriminate, number one. Um, number two, I will perhaps uh, shock you a little bit by saying we have to surveil more. Uh, not only I would restore the metadata uh, collection, I would couple it with a comprehensive uh, data mining of all sorts of other databases, uh, which, again, um, not a new idea. It was had a somewhat unfortunate name of a total awareness program, which was briefly kicked around after 9-11. Unfortunate name. Uh, even in early post-9-11 days, it did not last very well. 
Uh, but I would tell you, uh, and again, we'll hopefully talk about it more, but the notion that you can really intelligently assess the value of this effort in sort of simplistic and crude terms, ladies and gentlemen, like, well, how many terrorist plots did the metadata collection, and you all know what metadata is, is a silly question. I used to be a defense analyst in the early stages of my career. It's like asking, you know, what is the role of, you know, uh, a particular subset of your artillery capabilities, or what's the role of, of, you know, one transport helicopter out of many in a helicopter fleet? You bring a variety of assets to bear upon a given task. There's synergies among them. Yes, you presumably want to invest money in something that has some relevance, but I mean, nobody ever in the military context subjects a particular facet of your capabilities to that type of answer. You cannot. You, you, you want because you use your artillery, you, you use your standoff munitions, you use your fixed-wing aircraft, you use your helicopters, you use troops on the ground, and you defeated the enemy. And yes, people engage in operations research afterwards and come up with some generalizations, but you cannot ever justify anything well by requiring the government to prove almost beyond a reasonable doubt, as Nadine's you know, test would be, but it makes sense. So again, I would combine, and I'll reassure you in a second that I did not agree about encryption, so I'm not being a total troglodyte here, but I would engage in most wide-ranging uh, amalgamation, surveillance amalgamation of all sorts of publicly available data. Because look, again, the good news is that if you put things together, and I'll tell you in a second how you do it in the age of cognitive computing, but if you put things together, if you look, for example, at some of those you know, metaphorical uh, footprints in the snow, Terrorists or bad guys do strange things, you know. For example, the, Mr. Farouk went, uh, prior to the San Bernardino attack, went for some uh, target practice. Okay, we go to target practice. I've not done it in many years. When I was younger, I enjoyed going to target practice. But typically, I went to the same target range because I chose one that I'm almost comfortable at and was close to my house. What convenient in my office, I frankly don't remember. He went to multiple target ranges. It was kind of weird. So that's one little data point. And let's say, you know, um, he engaged in, in other types of behavior in terms of what establishments he frequented, what he bought, what types of phone calls he made. Again, not talking about content. I'm talking about metadata, and I'll try to convince you in a second that there's absolutely no reasonable expectation of privacy in that type of data. But that's a legalistic, well, important point. So if you put all those things together, you can get some meaningful number of red flags. Not a certainty that somebody's a terrorist, red flags. And red flags would enable uh, otherwise scarce law enforcement resources to be deployed appropriately and to bring to bear, it's a reasonable basis, you don't need a probable cause to start an investigation, a reasonable basis to go look at things, which is all you do. And, and by the way, surveillance has to be accompanied by vigorous use of human, particularly in the area of resources. We're all comfortable with that. Local police departments do it. FBI does it. Just a question of, you know, you cannot do it with millions of people to look at, and, and we don't want to be profiling people based upon the ethnicity or religion. So in a sense, having this type of surveillance is only a way to prioritize law enforcement resources. Um, I also think that, frankly, uh, the, even if the other benefit, and I've used this term before, the other benefit of doing all of this stuff is what I call virtual attrition. So, again, 
important term in, 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 in military art. What it does is you're putting pressure on the other side. You're forcing them to operate not in the optimal mode. If you use drones, it's not just a matter of killing bad guys. It's making them skulk about. It's making sure that they don't all get together every time they want to. If you are surveilling, okay, that means they're going to operate not, uh, going to communicate not in the optimal mode. They're going to not have the same information density being transmitted. They're going to communicate for channels that have, you know, coding and decoding. So it has, it has value. Again, that's what the military does. It's not all about killing people and breaking things. It's about making them operate in less than optimal mode. And all of that results from the widest possible range of surveillance, not, not to, to tease you about cognitive computing, something I'm very interested in for other reasons. One other criticism you've heard in the past was, oh, we're assembling this treasure trove of information, and nobody can make heads or tails out of it. With metadata, for example, you can figure out the so-called one or two hops, who is communicating with people in a terrorist list. But what do you do with that? Well, if you look at, you know, AlphaGo computer and, and various other things and Watson that IBM is doing, we're very, very close to the point where uh, cognitive intelligence machines would be able to analyze data to precipitate out these types of patterns and then, say, present to their you know, human overseers, hey, look, there are you know, 50 or 60 telltale signs that suggest that maybe investigations need to be initiated to look at this person or that person or that organization. As far as encryption is concerned, Nadine and I agree. Not so much because of a balancing of costs and benefits. I don't want to get there, basically because it would not work. And I've written suggesting that I don't think that backdoors and mandatory uh, encryption, uh, decryption keys should be provided. Uh, should not be provided because, you know, the, the risk of penetration by the bad guys is, uh, is, is, is worse than the benefits of, of reading this information. Basically, th that data stream is going dark, ladies and gentlemen, and it's very simple. Uh, even if you force all your technology companies, Apple and companies overseas, to provide you with those capabilities, you can generate your own encryption algorithm using some very basic Turing-type computer. So it would not work. So it's not work. Not worth debating it. Now, interesting thing, however, is that being able to discern that somebody is using the strongest possible encryption, that's customized encryption, ladies and gentlemen, not the commercially provided encryption, is an interesting telltale sign because no matter how paranoid we are, I mean, if I'm talking to you or I'm talking to my friend from college days and I'm using the strongest encryption and it does have telltale signs, why the hell is that? So it's one interesting, interesting sign among other signs that can be used to precipitate out potential things worthy to look at. Uh, now, the thing that depresses me the most, frankly, is the quality of our, I'll stop in a minute, of our discourse about those matters. Because I would submit to you, and I hear in the dean of my you know, esteemed great land, um, that there were terrible abuses. I don't know what the hell we're talking about. There have been no abuses worthy. Look, the government's a clumsy beast um, in any administration. Some are better than others, but the government, and we better remember that when we talk about all the good things that only government can do. They don't do things perfectly. They don't deliver goods and services perfectly. They don't deliver medical care well. They don't deliver social services well. They don't deliver national security well either. 
So there are always debates and disputes and, you know, people step on each other's toes and write reports that reflect not only the, the revealed truth but their bureaucratic preferences. But by any reasonable historical standard, about thinking about all the bad things that happened in the aftermath of World War I and World War II and during the Cold War and witch hunts and McCarthyism, what, what abuses, aside from this hugely overblown stuff, and I wish I can put it somewhat more robustly, by Snowden, has anybody been punished, repressed, lost jobs, lost tenure, uh, put in prison, had accounts frozen? You know, I mean, the, the, the worst thing is the, the, the you know, the so-called lovent, that it turns out, because for one thing, our intelligence agency is operating with tremendous amount of oversight, both internal checks and balances where, you know, FBI is looking at NSA and NSA is looking at the CIA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, plus congressional oversight. The worst thing that had happened, ladies and gentlemen, aside from all the speculative nonsense, is that you had two or three analysts, have been written up, uh, unclassified, use the, you know, <laughs> uh, use the program to spy on their girlfriends or wives to see if they were cheating on them, and they were punished for it. It all came out. Really? I'm not minimizing that. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but that's really horrible abuse worthy of putting a thumb on the scale of balancing liberty and order. It's ridiculous. Nothing like that happened, and nothing like this is likely to happen. Now, Nadine probably correctly noted that there are some people who are deterred by this age of massive surveillance that the government engages in, and it adversely impacts their speech. I'm all in favor of having untrammeled exercise of our First Amendment protected associational and speech rights. I litigate a lot in this space. I get it. But the question is, if people have unreasonable fear about something, it's like vaccines. Look, 20 or 30% of Americans believe that vaccines kill and it's not vaccination. It's an absurd view. That view should not be indulged. That view should be combated and overcome because vaccination is good for you despite some risks. So it has surveillance. So I have no doubt that there is some self-censorship, but, but that's not reasonable. And we should have a debate that points out why that's not reasonable and gets people comfortable with that degree of government involvement. I mean, another funny thing to me, and I do a lot of regulatory law, the government is far, far more able to hurt individuals and companies in spaces that have nothing to do with terrorism, uncovering alleged health care fraud, or environmental violations, or security violations. And again, I'm not saying I, I served in two administrations, I'm not an anti-government nut, but the government can not only be clumsy, the government can be repressive, individual officials, and vindictive. Okay, that's why we have laws to go after individual officials at federal and state level who've done it. Far worse things, believe me, happen in all those other spaces we're not touching today. The counterterrorism and national security is so heavily regulated of such level of political accountability, both in the executive branch and Congress and judicial, that it's good. I'm, I'm in favor of bolstering, I've written about it, bolstering oversight a bit more, having more detailed briefings, frankly, having members sign a piece of paper attesting that they've been briefed so we don't have memory failures like some people had. I'll try to be bipartisan about it, but, you know, it's good to have politicians gotten. You got a very sensitive classified briefing about some surveillance effort. You heard about it. 
if you don't like it, say something now. If you're not saying something now, put your Jen Hancock. So six months later or six years later, you would say, I wasn't there or I didn't hear it. I didn't understand it. That would be a good thing. But it's good. There are no problems fundamentally here. And, and, and one final point, which is both you know, a matter of policy but also a matter of law. The notion that judiciary should be more involved in it with respect to Nadine is, makes no sense, either policy-wise or constitution-wise. In our constitutional system, Article Three is not a privy council. The judicial role is essentially in signing off on warrant applications. That's it. They're not supposed to, I mean, yeah, they're yeah, Warren Commission to investigate this or some other commission to investigate that. So you can have a chief justice participating in his private capacity, not as a judicial officer of the United States, in some policy exercise. And then judges, you know, my good friend, uh, Judge Posner, loves to write about national security and may sit on some commission one day. But that's not what judiciary constitutionally does. I would submit to you that Fisk, even today, is probably operating beyond its proper constitutional remit when they pass judgments on programmatic components of our national surveillance uh, efforts, far removed from approving warrants. But doing it more of that is a bad idea. And let me tell you, as constitution aside, and I venerate the Constitution being a constitutional lawyer, but in general, framers were very smart. Having the judiciary participate in something that ain't judicial doesn't do any good. It only gives cover to the two political branches. It only diffuses responsibility and accountability. A far rather have the executive be accountable for what it does, Congress be accountable for what it oversees, versus saying, well, and it comes from both critics of surveillance, for example, metadata collection, as well as supporters. Oh, well, Fisk signed on it. Well, who cares? They didn't sign about it as an Article Free Court. No one think they are an Article Free Court comprised of, of, of federal judges. So let's not sort of idealize and over-venerate the notion if we put a bunch of judges in there, it would make it better. But my bottom line view is there's no fundamental problem. Everything is fundamentally fine in this space. And we should have a, a serious education campaign that tells people that the problem, but I think Nadine is recognizing this. One final point, what I don't understand for the life of me, we live in an age where people almost happy to expose their innermost thoughts and most private observations with Facebook and Twitter and this and that to a cast not only to your know, closest friend, your BFF, but hundreds of people who submit all sorts of information to commercial entities in order to get credit and goods and services and various other benefits, okay? And there's some regulation there, and I'm not saying there should be, but they do it as a price of existing in, in a modern world and doing well. Now, there are some people who go live in the woods and don't do that, but it's a very distinct minority. For the life of God, why are people much more comfortable doing all that? In a situation, there's a lot less oversight, a lot less regulation, and a lot more opportunities for abuse because there are definitely abuses in the private sector every time there are data breaches and whatnot. Much worse than this love-in thing with two or three analysts who are spying on their girlfriends or wives. Why is this different? Now, the answer, of course, would be the government can do worse things to you if they learn something than, you know, your local Walmart. But you have to be reasonable. Everything in life is a matter of reason. Okay, the government could do worse things to you, but have they? What's the pathway? What's the avenue? Are there any examples in the last, you know, since 9-11 or even before of any bad things happening? And the answer is zero. Thank you.
I radically disagree with that last conclusion that the answer is zero. The answer is, uh, by my lights, every single person in this country. But more important than my lights are those of federal judge Richard Leon here in the federal court for the District of Columbia. Again, uh, a respected conservative who granted uh, injunctions against the NSA's indiscriminate surveillance program because he concluded that the mere existence of this program, even without independent abuses of its intended purposes, the mere existence and use of it against all of us innocent citizens who are simply trying to communicate online was itself an abuse of the Constitution. As he said, I cannot imagine a more indiscriminate and arbitrary invasion than this high-tech collection and retention of personal data on virtually every single citizen without prior judicial approval. Surely such a program infringes on the privacy that the founders enshrined in the Fourth Amendment. Indeed, I have little doubt that the author of our Constitution, James Madison, would be aghast. And for anybody who is a student of American history and constitutional history, we know that above all else, what the framers detested about the British rule and British tyranny was the so-called writs of general assistance that gave precisely, purported to authorize officials to engage in indiscriminate surveillance. Now, by uh, the standards of the NSA, this would be rather trivial, right? Uh, invading your physical space, indiscriminately rummaging through your papers. Uh, as uh, uh, many people have commented, James Madison and others would have rolled over in their graves if they could imagine the infinitely more intrusive, pervasive, indiscriminate surveillance to which all of us are subject. Every single communication, every single thought, every single, single association, financial transaction, health information, and the full treasure trove of uh, information about us that has been subject to the indiscriminate surveillance that uh, Judge Leon found fit to find unconstitutional. However, there has also been specific abuse, even beyond the secretive, um, at best, um, deceptive, at worst, existence of the program. Uh, as uh, David does what many defenders of that program do, which is to assert that it was subject to oversight by other branches of government. How meaningful is that oversight, given the shroud of secrecy and dishonesty in which it was cloaked? The most notorious example of which being uh, Director of National Intelligence James Clapper testifying before Congress in what he later admitted was a bald-faced lie that this program was not going forward. Uh, he first retracted uh, and, and apologized by saying, well, that was the least untruthful answer I could give. Uh, later on, he retracted even further and apologized for having lied. So there cannot be meaningful oversight without uh, truthful information. And David, from one of the pieces that that you wrote recently, I think we agree on this, that uh, for the sake of making Congress itself accountable, 
and helping Congress to make the uh, surveillance, uh, the executive branch uh, surveillance authorities accountable to we the people. Uh, there should be much more information sharing back and forth about this. Uh, in terms of the supposed uh, control that was being imposed by this super secret, one-sided FISA court, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, that court itself is, is hampered by the one-sided nature of the proceedings. And even the limited amount of checks that that court, which has been very criticized for being essentially a rubber stamp for every request for surveillance authority, it's been heavily criticized because it is uh, so strongly oriented in terms of the judges who have been appointed to it, uh, people with prosecutorial and law enforcement background. So it is especially telling that even that court, even without hearing advocates of privacy and civil liberties, even without having judges who have backgrounds of advocating privacy and civil liberties, when even that court has strongly critiqued and sanctioned the NSA for, not to put too fine a point on it, lying to the court about what it was doing. Uh, let me quote a couple uh, rulings by that have now come to light as a result of Snowden's disclosures that led to Freedom of Information Act uh, efforts by the ACLU and others. So first I'm going to quote a 2009 ruling from Fisk Judge Reggie Walton. Uh, the court had imposed some trivial, I mean, not at all sufficient by the standards that I laid out, but some minimization procedures to rein in the, a bit the indiscriminate sweeping nature of its surveillance. Um, and, and here's what Judge Walton said. He said the NSA had engaged in systematic noncompliance with fisk-ordered minimization procedures over the past three years going back to the inception, the very inception of the program in 2006, and had also repeatedly made misrepresentations and inaccurate statements about the program to the Fisk judges. Uh, consequently, Judge Walton concluded that he had no confidence that the government was doing its best to comply with the Fisk's orders, he imposed a six-month sanction. Nonetheless, the record of failure to comply, even with the limited controls that were imposed by the Fisk court, persisted. So that brings us to another angry order from a Fisk judge, in this case presiding Judge John Bates in October 2011. Uh, he found that the government had misrepresented the scope of its targeting of internet communications. He said, quote, the court is troubled that this is the third instance in less than three years in which the government has disclosed a substantial misrepresentation regarding the scope of a major collection program. So, so much for the lack of abuse, uh, supposedly so much for the effective oversight, uh, supposedly. Now, to turn from an area where we strongly disagree to an area where we disagree, I'll, I'll turn to the first, or where we agree, at least in part, uh, to the first point that David made, and that is the seriousness of the threat 
to national security that this country faces. Uh, I take those threats extremely seriously as a philosophical matter and as a practical matter. I think it is noteworthy, however, that going back to 2013, our top national security officials have emphasized as the number one threat, the number one national security threat that our country faces is not terrorism, serious as that is, uh, but it is, in fact, uh, threats to cyber security. Uh, so uh, cyber threats, so I'm quoting now from, this is an article from February 12th of this year, reporting on the testimony that Director of National Intelligence James Clapper provided to Congress on the annual worldwide threat assessment of the U.S. intelligence community. And he was accompanied in the congressional hearings with other top uh, current officials of the intelligence um, world. And they deemed cyber threats as the top global threat facing the United States, which is exactly why you see this constellation of past and current national security, counterintelligence, and defense experts saying that uh, if we allow the government to get back doors to our communications, to engage in excessive communication surveillance, that is feeding what is the number one threat to our national security, far from making us more safe. Uh, it will, in fact, do the opposite. Uh, I also have to say that in terms of, uh, in addition to the government's intentional misleading of the American public, uh, setting up in secret a program that violates the most core constitutional principles, not to mention legal statutes and congressional statutes, I should mention as well, in addition to Judge Leon having repeatedly held that the mass NSA program violated the Fourth Amendment uh, to the Constitution in the uh, Southern District, in, in the Second Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals, in, which is based in New York, in a lawsuit that was brought by the ACLU, a unanimous panel of that court concluded that without even reaching the constitutional problems that the mass NSA surveillance violated uh, Congress's statute, the relevant section of the Patriot Act, as indeed even members of Congress that have called themselves the, you know, the lead authors of that section have said it was never our intent. Certainly the language doesn't say it, and it was never our intent to authorize this kind of indiscriminate surveillance. So double whammy unlawful, violating a federal statute and violating the U.S. Constitution. Uh, but beyond those abuses that consist of violation of the law, violation of our rights, we also have a problem of uh, lack of government competence uh, to protect us from hackers, from cyber criminals, from even cyber terrorists. So I'm concerned on the level of competence as well. Uh, would we call this an abuse uh, for the government to act uh, incompetently or, or negligently? I, I, it certainly bothers me, whatever, whatever label you put on it. Uh, just in 2015 alone, the Federal Office of Personnel Management was hacked to the tune of 22 million personal records, 
we're talking about just one year, last calendar year. Hackers released their and beyond government. Uh, the private sector has also been vulnerable here and made all of us vulnerable. Hackers released 32 million accounts from Ashley Madison, a site none of you is familiar with, so let me explain that it facilitates adultery. Uh, and hackers also infiltrated Anthem, the IRS, and even the director of the CIA. So even without intentional abuse, we are also vulnerable as a result of, of negligence. Uh, I guess I'm not, I've got to wrap it up, so um, let me just end with a question. David says that he thinks that the standards that are imposed under U.S. constitutional law and international human rights law before the government may engage in surveillance are too strict. Uh, I'd like to ask him what standard he would advocate instead. Surely he's not going to give the government an absolute free pass with no sh justification at all to engage in violations of both privacy and security. Thank you. I'll, I'll be very brief. First of all, in the law, complicated, uh, it's a complicated area, but let me assure you that the Fourth Amendment does not mean uh, what Nadine and, and, and some of her colleagues say it means. Uh, in order for the Fourth Amendment to even apply, and there are some serious disputes as to whether or not a warrant is required for any government acquisition of information which you have reasonable expectation of privacy. Reasonable expectation of privacy, and I'll explain in a second what it means. Or is it only the case that you have to obtain a warrant when information is or may be used for prosecutorial purposes. But aside from that interesting debate, it has to be something which you have legitimate expectation of privacy. There's plenty of case law, ladies and gentlemen, dealing with, you know, under words like plain sight doctrine. If you put out information in the public domain, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy. You may have expectations of privacy if you're a privacy crest, but it's not reasonable. And it had been brought out over years and decades in cases like some foolish people. People should not be, in my view, cultivating drugs. But if you cultivate drugs, don't put a freaking cannabis plant into your window where it's visible from the street. Because when a cop walks by and sees said cannabis plant, he does not need a warrant. It's in plain view. Okay? And the same thing happens, by the way, when, again, it's interesting to me how little people understand, I'm afraid, Nadine, how much stuff gets acquired in other contexts. You can have a third-party subpoena by a, you know, most junior state prosecutor investigating something having to do with the way you run your nursing business, who's going to get in and get all your emails from all your service providers, and they're going to get to read. Now, they disputes about that, but they're going to read all of that stuff, and it turns out from your emails that you're planning a bank robbery, they're going to get you, even that's not the purpose which was obtained. It happens every day, okay? Lots more acquisition by this information, because, if, by the way, if you entrust information, your service provider goes up in the cloud and various other places, it ain't a legitimate expectation of privacy. I can quote you cases, we can talk, debate it back and forth, but it's something you need to realize. And again, look, the irony here is I think Nadine is much more of a Tea Party person than I am. Government is a clumsy beast. It does most things not very well. Though the degree of criticism that Nadine is referring to in those two Fisk opinions, which I'm very familiar with, because at least they're the ones who've been declassified, is 
nothing compared to, I can give you a hundred cases where this circuit and that circuit and that district court judge slammed Department of Agriculture, okay? And Department of Transportation, and EPA, and FCC, and FERC, and every other agency in the firmament for lying, for cheating, for not doing this, for not doing that. That's how the government works. Okay, and it's really bad. People get prosecuted, fired, go to prison. And, and, and the fifth judge is basically participating in the interagency process, as far as I'm concerned. They're not oracles of Delphi. They're expressing their view. The intelligence oversight statutes are very complicated, ladies and gentlemen. I've not done it for many years, but back in my days at DOJ and, and the White House, I used to deal with some of that. They tax the, the minds of most brilliant lawyers on all sides, okay? And people disagree about it. So the fact that Fisk judges disagree about whether or not, you know, uh, NSA complied with some minimization order or some acquisition order ain't, I'm not saying that they were wrong. They may well be right. I don't frankly know the details. Not even, I bet you Nadine does. But it ain't unusual. It's not a sign of some horrible practices going on, okay? Two final points. She has not mentioned anybody who was punished incorrectly, who suffered, okay? Because there's no such examples. They don't exist. And, again, compared with the normal regimen of our great government, which I love, and all administrations is doing things that only the government can do, the national security area is pretty done clean and it's pretty vital. And if you don't like that, then you should all guys, you know, ladies, go support Tea Party or Donald Trump and turn everything upside down because, believe me, believe me, the FDA, Federal Drug Administration, vacuum cleans records from pharma companies with a lot less, using administrative subpoenas, with a lot less oversight, but a lot less uh, standards for dissemination. And, you know, and FERC does it to energy companies, and EPA does it to everybody. So if you don't like this, you absolutely don't like the way our government functions. The essence of reasonable risk assessment is to look at things across the board. You cannot just say, well, I don't like this, but there are three things that present even greater danger. That's okay with me. The final thing about the threat, look, there's no connection I know of, or any technical person I heard tells me, in simple terms, between cyber threat and the kind of surveillance I'm talking about. On encryption, Nadine and I agree. We don't even need to go there. There's absolutely no connection between the government recollecting the metadata and combining it with the other information in the public domain from dozens and dozens of public databases and using cognitive computing to precipitate out potential suspects and bringing law enforcement. Zilch. So it's, it's a straw man, I'm sorry to say. It's a classical straw man. I think the government should harden it up as well as possible against cyber penetration, but they got nothing to do with it. So it's not, that's not an issue. And the final point is this. I don't care if terrorism is number one threat or number two threat. It is a huge threat. The government owes us, if nothing else, to be safe from our enemies. Okay? That's number one function of, of government. And the only game in town, ladies and gentlemen, we have is surveillance. We do not have, as in the Cold War, we do not have our agents penetrating those organizations. Pretty well impossible. Any intelligence professional will tell you that. We can talk about why. And believe me, we don't defect, unfortunately. We don't have, you know, Colonel Pinkowski-type guys defecting from al-Qaeda uh, or ISIS. Sadly, they don't seem to be that driven by money. They 
believe in really bad stuff, but they really believe in it. So we don't have that. Oh, and by the way, we don't interrogate folks much these days at all. That's not politically correct, no matter what the standards are. So the only damn thing we have to get at them is surveillance, okay? If we don't have that, we have nothing. Might as well wait till we get hit the next time and the next time and the next time. And again, there's no problem. There's no crisis. I've heard nothing that suggests otherwise. Thank you. I know I don't get a response, but I'd like to uh, give David a little present to honor his position. And I, it's got the fringe benefit of having a picture of, of President Obama on the, it's a little tin, which shows President Obama uh, uh, with a, a headphone and a listening device, thumbs up, saying NSA approved, and they are lemon-flavored Eve's drops so enjoy think of me when you suck on them david i will i will put it in my desk um well i i'm sure everyone has uh enjoyed this and learned as much from this as uh, as i have uh, i've been looking forward to this debate for a long time and i've learned a great deal uh we, have, we don't have a lot of time. I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative and ask the first question, though, which is, goes as follows. If I were a Martian and I just landed in the United States and I wanted to find out, uh, I wanted to find out something about Nadine or about David or about some class of people who might be suspected terrorists or really about anything. And, and I had some omniscience about how the world actually works. I, I don't think I'd go to the federal government to find out. I, I'd go to any number of private companies whose internet business model is surveillance, plain and simple. They surveil, they collect information, they retain information, they use that information. They know far more about practically any of us than I'm sure the federal government does. That what the Internet has done has changed, one of the many things that it's done is it's changed the way information is used. And uh, as, as David, you mentioned several times, the government's very clumsy. They're not very good at a lot of this stuff. The private sector is really, really good at that. And uh, they probably, if they had wanted to monitor this guy on San Bernardino and you, you told them, well, tell us who's been going to different uh, rifle ranges and uh, different things. Uh, I'm sure somebody knows that. Um, could you, and yet there is a, an entirely different role of the government, as both of you have said. The government is different from a private company or a private entity. And yet I think the, the, rel the relative scope and control of information uh, that the government has relative to the private sector, I would, I would say 30 years ago, the government probably has far more information about individuals than the private sector does. Today, I think it's vastly the other way around. And I just wonder, how does that enter into thinking about surveillance? And, and Can I go over here? Because sure. fairly early, you're making my point. We all live in a fishbowl. If one is not comfortable with it, let's be you know, reclusive and run into the woods. If we don't, let's be reasonable about it. Again, one of the things that bothers me is that people do not assess a given concern in the continuum, or to put it you know, somewhat tritely, you know, yes, I, I worry about this threat, but it's somewhere below my fear of being eaten by piranhas, which means it isn't very high given where we live. We, it's not even the hiring a private surveillance company. 
you can go, and if you're knowledgeable, and a young person in particular, and you can get more information about any one of us today than you know, most of you would realize. You can get your unlisted phone number. You can get mortgage documents. You can get a, a, you know, a picture of your house. You can, uh, it's all there. Since we accept that, we have to look at what the government can do as part of the same broad narrative of our tolerance for the lack of total privacy. And then you, I understand that the government can do worse things to you, although yeah, not necessarily. Private sector entities can do horrible things to you, too, believe me. Um, you have to look at why is it being done, what the risks are, and what are the safeguards. And once you put it in that perspective, there's nothing to worry about in this space. So that's one of my lamentations. Well, this is one of the reasons why I think the Tea Party would not welcome me, David, despite your endorsement, uh, which is as a civil libertarian, but not, uh, you know, libertarian, I do believe that government can have a positive role to play precisely in protecting our liberty and our privacy from violation by uh, powerful private sector entities which are not subject to constraint under the United States Constitution. Uh, so the ACLU and many others have joined in supporting legislation at every level of government, regulation at every level of government to constrain the power of the private sector to collect, use, misuse, store, etc., our private data. Uh, now, uh, and, and in fact, re very recently, the uh, FCC did announce that it was moving in a direction that I think you've criticized, Harold, of, um, and forgive me if I'm wrong about that, uh, of right. subjecting, <laughs> right, subjecting to regulation um, uh, internet service providers that, uh, in terms of their ability to to re reduce our privacy, to misuse our information. On both subjects, government and private sector, uh, ability to invade our privacy, again, I am not an absolutist, and I don't know anybody who is. What we are asking for are meaningful constraints in the government sphere, that means that the government has to have, as the Constitution demands, individualized suspicion. There has to be uh, independent oversight beyond the executive branch of the government itself through the independent court system. In the private sector, I think one of the most important constraints is transparency and consent that we should have an opportunity as consumers to, uh, we should have to opt into affirmatively any situation that is reducing our privacy, uh, and, uh, and it should be a meaningful op option. We should not have to give up being denizens of the online world. I uh, choose between that and privacy. That is not a real choice. We have time for just one or two questions, and let's start with the gentleman in the back. Sunshine Press. I'm interested in the political aspects of this. Why is it that conservatives who generally believe in what they used to call strict constructionism and now they call originalism, that especially in the, with regard to the Tenth Amendment, the Constitution reserves 
to the people in the states, all power not specifically granted to the federal government. Why is it that conservatives see in that constitution, or inclined to see in that constitution, uh, authority for the government to do things that aren't spelled out in the constitution? And why is it that liberals are inclined to, in general, go along with increased government activity, but not when it comes to surveillance? Well, I suppose the question is addressed to me, at least in part, but I would say with respect, I fancy myself a serious constitutional lawyer. That's my, that's my life and my vocation. I don't understand the question. The government, uh, I understand limited enumerated powers, Article 1. I understand federalism. Believe me, I do. But the government clearly can uh, acquire information in pursuit of variety of purposes that are within the legitimate domain of both federal and state government. The question really here is how, not whether. And how is cabin by the Fourth Amendment, of course, applies to both federal government and the states. And any reasonable reading of a Fourth Amendment suggests that, back to my cannabis plant in the window, kind of a homely analogy, that if this information ain't the one to which reasonable expectation, if you, if you take a machine gun and erect it on your lawn, you cannot be very upset that the local police would come and, you know, if there is some kind of ordinance against it. Actually, you know, federal law is still in the books against machine guns, would give you some hard time and arrest you probably because you did it. Okay? You have a choice of whether or not to put a canvas plant in the window or put out a machine gun uh, on your lawn. You have a choice of whether or not to give your otherwise private information to search programs. Metadata. Metadata ain't private at all. It's not even information so you have on your own. You can't generate on your own. It's information generated by your service provider in order to bill you. Okay, it ain't private. Certainly not private to you. It's a business record of your service provider. And with all due respect, and Dean, the notion that the framers or Madison, whom I esteem greatly, would, would be upset, but if you walked out in your local pharmacy store in Boston and ordered, you know, some eye drops in the presence of not only your pharmacist, but five other people, your neighbors standing there, that is private information which a warrant is required. One final point. What I don't understand, again, is kind of idiosyncratic thinking. What I'm talking about is the intelligence acquisition on a national plus international level that happens over time in local police work. Very briefly, I don't have time. A local cop or detective, to be respectful, goes and says, Some, I think something bad may happen. Let me go kick the tires in the neighborhood. Let me ask you who seen what, who heard what, you know, strange people driving around, maybe lots of money passing hands, maybe this, maybe that. You can assemble that information. You don't need probable cause for that. That's not a warrant. You're talking to people. You're looking at things in the public domain. Fundamentally, ladies and gentlemen, all that we're talking about, Nadine and I, is doing the same type of thing in a different sphere for electronic surveillance. But that's it. And why is it acceptable to go in the local bar and say, well, you know, have you seen anything strange happen? Oh, you heard people talking about you know, robbing the warehouse. Okay. Who were they? Did you recognize? That's all kosher. But doing the same type of data development through surveillance, electronic surveillance, so then you can go kick the tires on specific people you identify, is somehow prohibited by the Fourth Amendment. It cannot be. Well, I disagree with uh, most of the details that David laid out, but I'm going to try to go to the core of your question. Your name was Edward, right? Uh, which is, um, why do so many conservatives depart from 
the text of the Constitution and the original intent, and uh, so many liberals uh, do likewise, depending on what the particular issue is, rather than consistently trying to honor both the text and the original meaning or uh, understanding of the Constitution. And I have some comfort to offer you, which is that on a number of very important recent privacy cases in the United States Supreme Court, before Justice Scalia died, when the court had nine um, contentious individuals who would often split five to four and being even more fragmented, we've had a number of recent decisions in which all nine of them came down very strongly in favor of privacy and strongly enforcing Fourth Amendment guarantees. Uh, the most recent example being a case called the Riley case from 2014 involving cell phone searches. And strikingly, all nine of them held that it was unconstitutional to extend to the digital world a judge-made exception to the Fourth Amendment uh, that had been made for um, seizures, searches and seizures pursuant to an arrest, when basically the law had been that uh, Fourth Amendment standards aside, if somebody's arrested, you can seize everything that that person has on his or her body. And the court said, no, we are not going to extend that exception to cell phones, given the wealth of private information that's available on those phones. And I thought it was really remarkable uh, that, that all of them, from the most liberal to the most conservative, came down to it really respecting the words and meaning of the Fourth Amendment. And I'm going to read you just one line that they agreed on. Uh, we cannot deny that our decision will have an impact on the ability of law enforcement to combat crime. Cell phones can provide valuable incriminating information about dangerous criminals. Privacy comes at a cost, but privacy is protected by the Fourth Amendment. So take comfort. And I just add, add one thing very briefly. The irony here is this. By the way, I don't disagree with this decision, and I, I understand what they were doing. And let me assure you uh, that once government gets somebody in custody, local police most likely, it's a fool's errand to get a warrant. In fact, I mean, I've dealt with a number of cases where we're actually fighting to suppress warrants. <clears throat> Getting a warrant is so easy peasy, as my niece would say. It's not funny. Don't, the notion that there's some great comfort to obtaining a warrant is, is, is just not true. The problem, again, arises not in the context of somebody who's been taken in cust into custody and, okay, so you're not going to automatically on your own go search for his or her cell phone. You're going to go get a warrant from a magistrate. Fine. Two hours. Three hours tops. It's not knowing out of the millions of people out there which ones deserve closer scrutiny by law enforcement. That is the, at the heart of counterterrorism. Okay? Is nothing to do with law enforcement scenarios. In the context of law enforcement, we can afford to be far more punctilious go way beyond Fourth Amendment, which, by the way, again, very lenient. I'm all in favor of, of tougher standards for warrants and, and subjecting individuals who submit warrant applications that are a little frisky to personal liability 
whether they're state or federal officials. All in favor of it. It's a good thing, even if some you know, bad criminals go. It ain't the same in the context of counterterrorism, because the only way you can get at the people, unless you want to wait till they strike, or you get lucky because you run into somebody before you can pull out a gun and blow himself, the only way you can do it is figure out which one of, not even millions of, hundreds of millions of people need to be looked at more closely. There's no other answer. And I would ask Nadine, I know we don't have time. I keep hearing about, well, I'll balance it differently. How would you do that? How would you know who needs to be investigated? You don't. You don't, unless you do that kind of surveillance. I, well, let me just point to a long history that predated what has been called the golden age of surveillance. Uh, if you ask anybody now in law enforcement or counterintelligence, are they better off now than they've been in the past, they would say yes. They have an infinite amount of information about us and have been successful in foiling many counterterrorism plots, not to mention uh, other law enforcement problems through the use of the techniques that are completely consistent with the Fourth Amendment. Indeed, right after 9-11, I remember former FBI Director William Webster, uh, was who was opposing the extended government surveillance power under the Patriot Act, even before we realized that the government would, in secret, extend that power even further beyond the plain language of the provision. He said, look, you know, when I was FBI director, he was also CIA director, uh, we were able to FOIL, and he listed the number of plots, uh, through using good investigative techniques we did not need to jump over. And paraphrasing him very closely, we did not need to jump all over people's privacy. In fact, uh, the 9-11, the bipartisan 9-11 commission, which looked into what caused the terrible tragedy on 9-11, what steps could be used to prevent another such tragedy, that kind of analysis was not done before the Patriot Act and this expansive surveillance power was rammed through with almost no debate, almost no hearings. But after the fact, they looked into it. And guess what? That bipartisan commission did not say we need more surveillance power. No, they flagged a problem that I thought, David, you indicated uh, you might agree with, which is not that we can't gather the information, but we don't have the capability. We're not investing sufficient human and other resources into analyzing this huge mass of data uh, that we already do have. So yes, we can have effective protection uh, against terrorism. Nobody wants to be vulnerable to terrorism, certainly not me. Respect, this is not true. The 9-11 Commission report is still available. Talked a great length about the so-called wall, which is one specific manifestation of the Restrictions, data sharing that you all rooted in obsession with privacy. But again, Nadine, I respect you greatly, but can you just in 30 seconds say, how would you find somebody like Mr. Farouk? Let's forget all the stuff about normal investigative techniques. How would you find another Mr. Farouk? Unless you look at the communication streams, not content. Unless you look at my electronic footprints in the snow to see what are the telltale signs, bringing the best cognitive analytics possible, and if you massage the data, you can come up with enough parameters that show you a deviation above the baseline. 
Doesn't mean the person is a terrorist, but it's war for domestic. How would you do it? How would you find you another Mr. Do that, as the director of national intelligence has said, with individualized suspicion. How would you and, know? And data experts have said that the data mining uh, that you are advocating, David, is junk science. That it is not an effective. Imagine, how way. would you know about the suspicion? Because a lot of these people are lying low until they freaking attack. So what individualized suspicion are you going to have? He's going to go in a bar and start bragging and I'm going to go kill a bunch of people? Some will, but many will not. How would you get the individualized suspicion in the modern world? How? Well, uh, I could stay here all day. Uh, unfortunately, I was hoping I, an uh, audience member would get to ask a question, which is why I self-censored. Uh, but I, I had actually promised our speakers we would be done uh, 11 minutes ago, and uh, I know, you've got a plane to catch. So uh, please join me in thanking our speakers today.